Thanks for joining us on the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. It's winter at the time of this recording, and winter in Oklahoma can be kind of relative. This week, we're seeing almost spring-like temperatures, highs in the 60s, even the 70s. But I'm sure before long, the bottom will drop out like nobody's business and we'll be freezing again. Just like we were about two weeks ago, when an incredible Arctic blast hit us and much of the nation. Some places in the Northeast getting like five feet of snow in a few short days, temperatures below zero and the wind chills dangerously low. We were off work, thankfully, the day that our temperatures dropped dramatically. It was three degrees Fahrenheit one morning. Talk about a bit nippy. And the winds were upward of 30 miles an hour, so the wind chill was hovering around negative 25. And while staying home would have made the most sense, we bundled up and ventured out in the cold, making the trek to the city to visit someone in the hospital. The walk from the parking garage to the hospital entrance was painfully cold, especially when we turned the corner at the front of the building and the breezeway in the driveway by the entrance, it formed a wind tunnel. It was biting cold. Not many people were out that day, understandably so, but one group in particular was noticeably missing that day from the usual mix of people in the city. As in many bigger cities, it's not rare to find the homeless standing on the street corners holding their signs, making their case for a, kind of, for a kind donation as you wait for the light to change, ready to receive anything you might be able to spare. They've got their system down, which corners to work, which lanes to visit, and depending on whether those waiting in their vehicles at the stoplight feel compelled to give or not during the awkward two minutes or so until the light changes, apparently those soliciting support at the crossroads can make pretty good money. You can bet that they definitely get sympathy points and probably see see donations increase during extreme weather. I've seen them out there during the extreme Oklahoma summer heat. Days close to 110 degrees. I'm sure it's good for business as those of us in our air-conditioned cars check to see if we have a dollar or two in cash to slip through a crack in the window while the light is red. Maybe a chance to encourage the solicitor to get out of the heat and into someplace cool. But the other week when the temperatures were brutally cold, All the street corners I saw were empty. No one standing there with their signs. Thankfully, many of the nonprofits and agencies and shelters had been pleading with the homeless for days to come inside, and they heeded the invitation. But from a marketing and business standpoint, I was thinking that day would have been the day they would probably have made bank. Had they had the means to be outside in the sub-zero weather, the holiday spirit in the air and the freezing temps to pull at the heartstrings of those in their heated vehicles, if there had been any needy on the corners that day, there would have been much to receive. Well, most of us have probably never needed to bear frigid weather to stand on a corner with a sign to meet our needs in that sense, but we can all identify with a greater need that none of us has been able to avoid. At the start of his ministry in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Pointing out that in the things of the spirit, we'd all be wise to discover our need and receive what God has to offer us when it comes to the kingdom. Spiritually speaking, we are all like beggars on the highways and byways of this world, in need, desperate to receive. In this section of Mark, Jesus and the disciples pass a beggar on the road, probably not in sub-zero temperatures like we saw recently in Oklahoma and much of the nation, but this man on the dusty roads of Israel in Bible times, well, he needed a handout. It was his only way of making a livelihood in the practical side of things, a man used to receiving whatever anyone could spare but a man who is also willing to receive much more from Jesus than just his daily bread, to fill greater needs that no one else had been able to fit and meet in all his years begging on the roadside. 
and he, for one, is not too proud to beg. Let's take a look at the story of blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. We see the scene in Mark 10, starting in verse 46. It says, Now when they came to Jericho, as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. Jesus and the disciples are making their way to Jerusalem, their final lap as they head there where Jesus will ultimately die on the cross. They are likely not the only ones making their way there. Jesus is to be crucified on the Passover in fulfillment of all the symbolism of the Old Testament tradition, in remembrance of God's deliverance of the people of Israel from slavery and bondage in Egypt, when each household took a lamb and slaughtered it, putting the blood over their door so that the angel of death, the tenth of ten plagues in Egypt, would pass over their homes. And for over a thousand years they had been keeping this tradition as a nation, all symbolic of Jesus, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, his blood being the mark upon the lives of those who put their trust in him, protecting them from sin and death. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So the Passover is coming up, and Jesus must be crucified on the Passover to fulfill the symbolism. And the Passover was one of three Jewish feasts in which all able Jewish males were to attend in Jerusalem, in person. There was no virtual option in those days. You were to attend if able if you lived close enough and to bring your family with you. So the roadways to Jerusalem are seeing increased traffic, more than likely with the influx of those coming to attend the feast. Now they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. On the road just outside of town, blind Bartimaeus is taking opportunity with these crowds, positioning himself along the road to cross paths with the great multitudes heading toward Jerusalem, such as the one accompanying Jesus and the disciples at this time. The town is Jericho, about 22 miles away from Jerusalem. Google Maps shows it would take about seven hours on foot from Jericho to Jerusalem, so it's one of the last stops likely for pilgrims heading to the feast. And Jericho is no stranger to biblical history. You might remember from Sunday school or Bible stories that Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. After wandering 40 years in the wilderness, it would be the first stop, the first battle, the first city taken by the Israelites as they entered the land. Prior to crossing the Jordan River, G Joshua sent spies to check it out. The two spies took cover in the house of Rahab the harlot who lived on the city walls, and she hid them. And they were able to escape, and she and her household were promised protection. When Israel finally crossed over, the campaign to take the city was a unique one. For six days, they circled the walls of the city one time each day, marching around. Then on the seventh day, they circled seven times, and then they blew the trumpets. And the walls of the city fell, and they took the city. Rahab and her family were saved because she feared the Lord. Interesting that Rahab would be in the genealogy of Jesus that we find in Matthew 1, one of just five women mentioned in that genealogy, a rarity for women to be named in any genealogy. In Rahab's case, the testimony that God can change anyone, that he is willing to receive anyone into his fold if they are willing to repent and come to him. A precursor to what we find in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. This Gentile harlot becoming a God-fearing woman grafted into the lineage of the Messiah. So Jericho was destroyed, this amazing defeat where God gave the Jews this city. He had prepared the way for them, 
the battle plan was unconventional, marching around it seven days in a row, and they just needed to be obedient to what God had said. And they would receive this city, this first inheritance in the new land. That was a huge part of them entering the land. They needed to be obedient and proactive to take it. But they would receive a land that God had prepared for them, a promised land. In Deuteronomy, God had told the people through Moses, So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. The promise that they would simply receive what God had prepared for them. How privileged we are as the people of God to be able to walk into things that God has prepared for his people. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and reminded them of what was promised in Isaiah. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Walking by faith, we trust God has prepared things for us and that we must step into them to receive the things that the Lord has for us, much as the Israelites received Jericho. It was a city that he prepared for them. What things does God have prepared for you, for your life, for your family, for your church, for your ministry? What a concept to reflect on as we enter into the new year at the time of this recording. In the coming years, things that he wants you to, to receive and step into fully when they come. We can miss those things when we spend too much time forming our plans and our goals and even our resolutions. They're not guided by the Lord, not formed in time seeking the Lord. We'd be wise to take time to seek and reflect in a new year or in a new season to make sure we're headed where God has prepared a way for us. So now Jesus and his disciples are there. This town, like many of ancient Israel, was built again. Remember, after they marched around it seven times, the walls fell down. But here it is a town once more. Interestingly, at the end of the count of the Battle of Jericho, Joshua said, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. Apparently, Jericho was never fully deserted. We find it mentioned in places like 2 Samuel 10.5, where David tells his servants to wait until their beards grow back there, they having been shamed by the Ammonites when David sent them as a good gesture. They shamed them instead. And Jericho had natural advantages. It had lots of water. It was apparently quite beautiful and fruitful. It was nicknamed the City of Palm Trees, as it's called in Judges chapter 3, verse 13. Jericho was also a strategic place from a military perspective, since it was on the way of the pass from the Valley of Jordan to the high ground of Ai and Bethel on the way up to Jerusalem. Even though Joshua had proclaimed a curse that Jericho should not be rebuilt, we see in 1 Kings 16.34 that it is rebuilt, likely under the influence of Judah's wicked king Ahab, who was not exactly seeking God's best for the people of his day. We read, And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Heal of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. So Heel rebuilds Jericho, despite Joshua's command not to do so. 
Hiel was either ignorant of Joshua's command or did it in defiance, maybe thinking it would please King Ahab or because King Ahab asked him to do it, right in the face of God, a pure act of disobedience. We are told that he laid the foundation with Abiram, his firstborn. Most likely, this means that his firstborn died as soon as he laid the foundation of the city. But this did not deter him from going on with it, and we're told with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates. Commentators say that likely the rest of his children died as he was rebuilding the city, until only his youngest son was left, and he too died just as his dad finished the rebuilding of Jericho, finally setting up the gates, one of the final steps of the building project. This took place more than 400 years after Joshua had pronounced the curse, which was fulfilled, and now the city is rebuilt, and blind Bartimaeus is sitting by the road begging right outside of Jericho. No social security or disability in those days, and Bartimaeus is placing himself along this road to receive alms, these donations, receiving whatever those traveling along this popular route might be able to spare. He can't work, he can't earn his own keep, so he is humble and ready to receive. Most people tend to be self-sufficient. It can be hard to ask or receive from others, preferring instead to depend upon our own resources and abilities, which there is some biblical foundation from that. Paul says, whoever will not work will not eat, so if we have the means to do so, we should be working. And there are times, though, where we might have to receive. Maybe it's an illness, not able to do things you might normally do, having to ask for help or receive help, practical help, even around the house, or to do basic things that you might normally do yourself in life, or being found in a situation where you do not have all the resources or answers, of having, having to reach out to receive. God has placed us in a body, and there are different giftings in that body, the body of people, the body of believers around us, and none of us has all of the giftings. We have gifts to edify others, to build them up. This means that we need to be willing to offer what God has given us for the benefit of others. And we must be open as well to receive the gifts of others that we lack. This creates a necessary interdependence as we give and receive from one another. The body edifying itself in love. One anothering, it's sometimes called in the New Testament. I've heard the testimony of a famous preacher. He has a thriving church and TV ministry all around the world. And he was, before coming to Christ, a drug addict. But he found God when some 12-year-old boy was walking through the woods, and they, he told him about Jesus. Imagine the picture. This drug addict dude meets a 12-year-old Christian randomly along this path, and he shares Jesus with him. How humbling to receive this message from this unlikely source. But when we receive... We recognize that we have a need, and we're willing to receive what it takes to fill that need. Who might God be positioning in our lives from whom we can receive? Their giftings able to build us up where we're lacking. Sometimes we're blind to the fact that we even have a need. Self-sufficiency blinding us as we press on and try to make it work. And in COVID, we tended to pull away a bit from the body of Christ. In some ways, believers learn to be more independent on the Lord, pushing their roots deeper into the Lord directly rather than being so dependent on others. The regularly scheduled meetings and gathering at church, the structured ministry opportunities that can sometimes keep the momentum going in our spiritual life. Learning instead to take some ownership of our spiritual life and relationship with God, even when churches were closed or we did not meet and gather under normal circumstances. But being independent to maintain a healthy spiritual life and making room to receive from the body of Christ, from other believers, that needs to stay in balance. 
And like the charcoal in a backyard barbecue, one piece of charcoal out on its own will eventually grow cold without the heat and flame of the others to keep it going. Bartimaeus is sober about his need and positions himself to receive from others, something we might be wise to do, to place ourselves in positions to receive, to surround ourselves with believers who can pour into us, to make time and place to receive what God might provide through the giftings of others. Bartimaeus finds himself in that very spot on the road outside of Jericho. And we read in verses 47 through 50, And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. Blind Bartimaeus hears that familiar sounds, the hustle and bustle along the road. His sense of hearing heightened after years of enduring a lack of sight. And he hears that it is Jesus of Nazareth who is coming. He's heard the stories. He knows the possibilities. And he won't be found silent, crying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's asking for mercy, not getting what he deserves. In these very words, he's showing that he is humble, sober, ready to receive. He has nothing to give Jesus, offer Jesus, entice Jesus with, impress Jesus with. Just a man who is wretched, poor, blind, and miserable. But the title he uses there, Son of David, Bartimaeus recognizes that Jesus of Nazareth, his hometown familiar, humble, unassuming, this Jesus, this carpenter from Galilee, he is the Son of David. He believed Jesus to be the promised Messiah, the one who was foretold. Back when King David was on the throne, David had declared he planned to build a house for the Lord, a permanent temple, since the nation of Israel was still worshiping in the temporary tabernacle that Moses had built. And David, a man after God's heart, ponders why he should dwell in a palace and the Lord should still dwell in tents. Well, Nathan the prophet tells David to go ahead with those plans, until Nathan receives a word from the Lord himself saying to David, You want to build the Lord a house? Well, he actually plans to build you a house. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. There's a near and a far fulfillment in this prophecy, first in Solomon, who would build a temple for Israel. But the far fulfillment, the ultimate son of David, who would rule over the kingdom forever, the promised Messiah. And blind Bartimaeus there in Jericho believes Jesus is the one, the Messiah, declaring it openly there on the roadside. Now, Bartimaeus is blind, and the Jews believed that if someone was born blind, that it was either due to the sin of the parents or there was prenatal sin in the life of the person themselves, sinning while still in the womb. If And they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls inscriptions that said that the blind will be excluded from the banquet of the Messiah. But Bartimaeus may be trusting in Scripture, not in tradition. And there were scriptures that said that the Messiah would open the eyes of the blind, among other things, like setting the captives free, bringing the prisoners out of prison, unstopping the ears of the deaf. So Bartimaeus is trusting what Scripture said about the Messiah. And he has heard, likely, all of the miracles Jesus was doing, and now he is calling out. It's my turn, Lord. I am ready to receive. 
this can be a crisis of faith for us many times. We see and know what Scripture tells us about God, but practically in our lives, things look a lot different. Or maybe we've been told by our own reasonings or, or by others, well, that is what Scripture says, but this is real life, as if those sorts of things don't happen to people like us. I remember getting to Bible college and going through the book of Acts and thinking, wait, does this stuff really happen? I see it on the pages, but have not seen that sort of stuff in my life or ministry. But being thrust onto the mission field where there was no choice but to trust in faith, there was a move of the Spirit. In my own life, on our team, and in our ministry, amazing that Scripture tells us the Holy Spirit is not earned, nor drummed up, nor achieved through some level of education or certifications. The Spirit is received. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Blind Bartimaeus has that kind of faith. Tradition and society are telling him one thing. Blind people are not included by the Messiah. But he knows what Scripture says, and he's going off that. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. Funny here. The crowd first tells him to be quiet. They warn him. Not sure what the warning was, but warning is a pretty strong thing. But then Jesus stops the procession. He hears the voice crying out in the crowd. Above all the noise, all the other, other, other people that are crying out, he hears Bartimaeus' voice. He stops the whole thing, stands still, and commands that he be called. Commands. Maybe because no one would have done it otherwise. And then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he's calling you. Funny this switch here. One minute the crowd warning him to stop it. The next minute his cheerleaders escorting him to the front. This fair-weather crowd, not wanting to insert themselves into the story, now they are on the bandwagon. We are to be careful of the voices that we let guide us. They can have their own motives and selfish ambitions as well, their own affections, leanings, fears, resources, insecurities mixed in. Also, we need to be careful about what we are hearing. Is it really telling us the truth, or do we need to be discerning of, of what's right and what's wrong? So important to surround ourselves with people who can be neutral and really seek God's best for us, setting aside their own desires, their own advice, their own agendas, their own perceptions, but to really hear God's heart for us and speak the truth in love, rather than yes-men who will just tell us what we want to hear. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. I'm so intrigued by this bit of information that he threw aside his garment. This is the outer garment. Why did he throw it aside? The word means to cast away. Maybe it was because he was a beggar and this thing was dirty and it stank. Many years along the dusty road in the hot Middle Eastern sun. Maybe he wanted to approach this Messiah respectfully, so he cast it off. A recognition of the holiness of Jesus, and he was aware of how unworthy he was and how much it stank and how much it smelled, how putting off it would be to most people, but probably not to Jesus anyway. Or maybe it is symbolic of his own righteousness, casting off the only thing that he had, coming naked virtually to Jesus. Nothing to give, 
but only to receive. It's interesting that the Gospel of Mark is told through Peter's eyes. And in John 21, Peter does the same thing when they're in the boat. After the resurrection, after a full night of fishing with nothing more than empty nets, when a voice calls to them from the shore and they realize it's the resurrected Jesus, it says, Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. Peter puts on his garment to approach Jesus, swimming with it to shore. This is after Peter had denied Jesus three times, even when he said he would not. Ashamed, is he trying to cover something up, put on a robe of righteousness? Well, the blind man outside of Jericho, he has nothing to hide, nothing to cover up. He casts aside his garment, realizing that all of his righteousness was as filthy rags, coming empty-handed to receive what Jesus has to offer something that we all must do. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Perhaps blind Bartimaeus throws aside his garment because it was the outer garment he wore being there by the road. It doubled as a blanket, as a sleeping bag, as a shade covering, all he needed there on the side of the road. But when he hears that Jesus is inviting him, by faith, he believed that he was going to see again and be going and leaving that place and that role, he was not going to be there again. Maybe he's putting it aside in faith that he won't need it anymore, stepping up to the plate and laying aside all the things from the past. As Paul says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. We see something similar with the Samaritan woman at the well in John's gospel. After Jesus tells her that he can give her living water, we read in John 4, The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? She left her water pot. That's the whole reason she was out there that day to meet Jesus, coming out to that watering hole daily. She would have to do it, filling up time and time again. Will this day after meeting Jesus... She left her water pot. She wasn't going to be needing it anymore because her thirst had been filled. She had found living water. We see this throughout scripture. The disciples leaving their nets to follow Jesus. The occult magicians in Ephesus burning their magic books after coming to know Jesus. They won't be needing them anymore. The soldiers during the storm in Acts, cutting away the skiff as a means of escape, believing the word that God will spare the lives of all those on board that ship, including Paul albeit through a shipwreck. It's a burn-the-ships moment, letting go of those former things in belief and commitment that you are going forward with Jesus and won't need those things anymore. Is Jesus calling you? What garments can you cast off? In faith and belief, what can you already lay aside, believing you won't need them anymore? So blind Bartimaeus is now standing before Jesus, empty-handed, and we read Mark 10, verses 51 and 52. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. What do you want me to do to you? What an interesting question. What do you want me to do? It should be obvious, right, Jesus? I mean, the man is blind. He stumbled his way forward, felt his way through the crowd. Uh, maybe not a blind man stick or a seeing eye dog with him, but it should be obvious, right? God knows our need. He is all-knowing. And yet he still invites us to tell him, 
to pray and to tell him what we need, to ask that he fill those needs. Here's an opportunity to get this man to acknowledge his need. We can wonder sometimes, why should I pray? God knows my need. But part of receiving is to vocalize those things to the Lord. James explored this a bit in chapter 4 of his epistle. He, He writes, Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Not having because we just won't ask. It could be a pride thing. It could be an entitlement thing. It could be a motivation thing that the Lord needs to work through. It could be a carnality thing that our hearts are not right in things. It could be our request is selfish and would not bring the Lord glory. But we are to ask. And sometimes we don't have because we haven't asked. John 14, verses 13 and 14. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. John 16, 24. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. 1 John 5, 14. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Here Jesus gives blind Bartimaeus a blank check, an open-ended question and invitation. What do you want me to do for you? When we ask and we don't receive, it should free us a bit. God has either said no or not yet, and we can't make it happen unless we do it all on our own. So we should keep asking, keep seeking. The Lord might reveal some things, some change of heart or mind or circumstances that might need to occur first, some preliminary things that need to take place before he delivers, but we should still ask. If Jesus were to ask you, what do you want me to do for you? How would you respond? It's something to consider. For blind Bartimaeus, there's no waiting period, no work that needs to be done first. The blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Rabboni, it's rabbi, teacher, but the Rabboni at the end, it means dear rabbi, an affection in this man's request, that I might receive my sight. He knows he can't work for it, he can't pay it off, he does not deserve it, but he's willing and open to receive it from Jesus. And then Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. It was immediate, in the moment, ending a section where Jesus is teaching his disciples some key things. And at the front end, there was another healing of a blind man. First, the man saw partially there earlier in the Gospel of Mark, men like trees walking. Then round two, and the man saw clearly. It was a gradual healing, a picture of the disciples as they would see things more clearly progressively. But this time, in an instant, all is clear. As the disciples also should now have a clear picture of what is to come, that Jesus is the Messiah, and they are headed to Jerusalem, and he will be betrayed and suffer and die for the sins of man. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. Jesus gives him permission to live out his life, to receive the blessing and go on. But the guy followed Jesus. The final boarding call for this trek into Jerusalem that would change history and eternity. The man has his sight now, and he chooses to follow Jesus. What do we do with the blessings that God gives us? This man wants his new life with sight to stay close to Jesus, to be used for Jesus' purpose and glory. What do we do with the blessings that God gives us? 
The Bible tells us that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He gives us those blessings to all the world. Even the most wicked, defiled person who's rejecting God still receives blessings from him. But what do they do with those blessings? In middle school, it was so awesome to be able to go to the music store and buy a cassette tape. Some artist you wanted to listen to more often than their songs would come on the radio, so you'd save up some money and buy the cassette. Singles were good, but the whole cassette was better. And one of the things I would do is on the first listen, I would listen to the whole thing all the way through from side A and side B. And as I did, I would read the cassette jacket. It contained all the lyrics, who worked on the songs, the musicians, the writers, the backup vocalists. And there was also the thank yous that the artist included. A list of people they wanted to thank for helping with the process of making the album. You could sometimes learn a lot about the person through their thank you list, but one I always looked for was to see if they thanked God. And most of them did in some way or another. I want to thank God for giving me the gift of song, or I want to thank the man upstairs who made all this possible, something along those lines. Acknowledging that their gift, their talent, their career, the opportunities were all something that was given to them. And my young middle school mind assumed that they were all Christians, right? I mean, they thanked God for the blessing of being able to sing for their talents. But were they stewards of the blessing that the Lord had given them? Or were they using the talent and blessings for themselves? Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, we're told in the, God, in the, in the book of James. But what do we do with the blessings that the Lord gives to us? How do we honor him with them? For blind Bartimaeus, the answer was simple. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. He was now along for the ride, available for whatever Jesus might ask of him. And he wanted a front row seat to all that was about to take place. Imagine, the man had never seen before. And all he will see in the next few weeks, the triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, the Savior on the cross, the empty tomb, the ascension into heaven, never having seen anything before. Now, just in time, he will see what is most important. Remember, God is never too late. God never holds out too long. God will come through when it is most important. And in eternity especially, we will not remember all the missed years and opportunities or things that we thought were missed years and missed opportunities. Blind Bartimaeus had years of not seeing, but when it truly counted, he has his sight. Jesus heard his prayer, Son of David, have mercy on me. And indeed, he did. Blind Bartimaeus is done with the begging, and he follows one he has never seen before. As believers, we are called to walk by faith, not by sight. And this can be trying for many of us, especially in seasons where we don't feel like we're seeing or hearing a lot kind of walking blindly, pressing on, but in a bit of disillusionment, even wondering sometimes, Lord, I'm following you, but do you even know where you're going? It seems that many these days are walking in that place. Peter not only relayed the gospel of Mark through his eyes, but later would pen his own epistle, and the believers were scattered throughout the world, disillusioned by the trials, the hardships, the disappointments, and growing persecutions that they were facing. And Peter wrote this in chapter 1 of his first epistle. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith be much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, 
and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Following Jesus is not always easy. It rarely is. Sometimes we think, Lord, I can't even see you. I don't even know where you're headed. I don't even know where you're going. I'm trying to follow you, but where are you? Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible. Following Jesus requires faith. We don't always see what he is doing. Following Jesus is worth it. The end of our faith, nothing that we have earned, but simply received through what Jesus has done for us. And we pray, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. We acknowledge, Lord, your greatness and holiness. And Lord, we confess that we are sinners in need of your forgiveness, your mercy, and your grace. God, we know that 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 prayer is one that you will always answer and that we receive all that you have for us with grateful hearts. So Lord, we ask, Lord, that you might open our eyes to see, that we might see where we're blind, where we're neglecting, where where we're deceived, that we might see with clarity. And Lord, forgive us for our pride, for our stubbornness, our rebellion, and our sin, those things that keep us from walking in the things that you've done for us. Surround us with those who can speak into our lives, Lord, to pour into our lives that we might receive from their giftings and be edified in our faith. And Lord, stir up the gifts within us that we can point others to you and walk with them toward the finish line. And Lord, most of all, fill us afresh with your Holy, your Holy Spirit. Lord, we receive that gift that you've given to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.